I'm Blake Hargreaves. Welcome to Future Stops. You're hearing the sounds of the Hourglass, a bespoke pipe organ that requires two people to play. One of three projects we'll be looking at today on another edition of our Organ Plus series, exploring ideas that take the organ far beyond its conventional manifestations. Also on the program, a pipe organ powered by the force of the ocean. But first, an artist exploring space and air to challenge the way we perceive music and sound. I'm Robert Kagenvan. I'm a composer and sound artist um, based in Ireland. Um, I work with pipe organs, um, overtones, um, a variety of instrumentation that works with um, specific iterations of movements of air. It's less focused on a phenomenological approach and more focused on an ontological approach. So the mode of being. I'm less interested in things happening um, it's more in what context they occur. So an uh, illustration of that is I've used field recordings a lot. I lived in the desert in the tropics on and off for about 10 years in Australia. Um, air is very important out there, particularly when it's very hot, and also the way that it moves through the desert and the way that it moves through the tropical zones like the monsoon, and that air changes qualities depending on temperature, humidity, and pressure. So those things are very much on display there. I also work with feedback, um, turntables, and that there's usually a specific iteration or a specific relation between the device, be it the turntable or whatever, and the amplification and also its placement in the room so that you're plumbing the harmonics of the resonators within which you're operating. So that, again, a very specific movement of air that produces little turbulences and microclimates that will affect how it moves around in those resonators and volumes. Let's talk about beyond enclosures. Um, if you could give us um, a background uh, and talk about the concept. I had three solo albums that I felt had an underlying relationship to each other, and I felt that releasing them as a three-volume set was a good way of showing the themes that and how they relate to each other and how they point to a fourth concept that's emergent from the three concepts. Um, the three albums are, one is done with turntables, pipe organ and um, piano. It's called Bardo. It's a, originally was an installation um, that's been shown in Germany, in Berlin, um, Lublin, Poland, um, Cork and also in New York over the years and there was a particular iteration of that that I felt um, worked well as a listening experience um, in stereo. So it works with the notion that um, you expect a sit given situation that the album generates to both change and also not to change. So you both expect things to remain the same and to become different. And so you're occupying the sort of liminal state that's between two diametrically opposed concepts. So um, that sort of bears out with this um, silences and sounds entering and leaving so that you sort of get disturbed by it and after a while you start to notice that there's a flow to it and it bears out the trajectory over a in this case a one hour duration so it starts to create a cumulative experience tell us about the the pipe organ's role in this in this piece of music and um you know for somebody who 
uh, is uh, an organist or, you know, has a, a, like, like from the past, I mean, maybe you can even talk about how it feels as a previously being a, a church organist uh, to using the organ in a totally different way. Um, I've been using the organ in this way for quite a number of years. I didn't um, perform in public for quite some time. I was particularly interested in the notes between the notes. And then I finally found a way particularly focused on using the stops and the subtle manipulation of the stop movements to control the air supplied to the pipes as being a way of achieving um, a sound that I was interested in, something that I'd also managed to achieve using turntables, um, guitar feedback, a variety of other spatial phenomena. One aspect of Bardo is that everything that's used to make the piece is specifically recordings and that it's very much focused on um, sound as a recorded phenomena. I also have a background in radio and that's where I learned to mix using a variety of inputs live on air. You know, you've got several CD players and Revox units and turntables and that this is sort of borne out with how Bardo was put together equally. Um, with regards to the sound, I am interested in uh, precision in the articulation and propagation of the sound and that this is also producing a modulation of spatial effects so that the pipe organ, the way that I'm allowing the air to move into the pipes and the way that it's being captured quite specifically with the placement of the microphones, that you'll notice that there, it's not so much that it's changing the spatial arrangement around you, but it's changing the affect or the effect that you're aware of. So it produces this um, spatial modulation. So it also addresses the idea of an objective truth versus a subjective truth. You know, our meat packet perceives certain things and we cognitively process that. But is it actually happening? Is it just relative to our cognitive processes? The turntables produced quite an aleatoric effect and that there was a timbral focus with that. And the pipe organ has a different um, set of timbral and breath textures that are responding to this aleatoric and tonal possibilities with the um, turntable. So it's kind of like a red thread that moves and um, breathes through what the turntables are doing within the piece. And what are what records are sitting on those turntables as you manipulate them? It was pretty much my entire vinyl collection as it existed in 2011. Um, so I was sort of attacking my record collection for a couple of days and working with the object and the resonant possibilities of the turntable to get different iterations of particular gestural approaches. And then that was then put onto three CDs. And the idea was you could put it on shuffle and it would never repeat. And that was originally created as a three-channel installation. So you would stand in the middle of a triangle. You'd never know when the next sound would appear and if there was no front or back. So it totally reduced or destroyed your usual architectural orientation when you're standing in an installation. Um, and then the pipe organ seemed to be an interesting way of adding four additional speakers also with the piano and that they would move in a slower, more um, elegaic fashion as a sort of counterpoint to the um, rapid aleatoric movement of the turntables. Uh, the pipe organ and the turntable share this similarity where um, 
in in some ways they were designed to reproduce the sound of something else. So the organ, you know, over time, uh, many iterations of the organ have, has been an attempt to recreate the sound of an orchestra and incorporate strings and trumpets and so on, and and the turntable as well. And then have it been adapted um, to, um, you know, become instruments in their own right. Does that have any impact on on uh, the you know this this history of these instruments and the contextualization of your idea in this piece? I'm particularly interested in the turntable and the pipe organ as they are, like as a gestalt um, iteration, like an object. I'm particularly interested in their resonant possibilities when you turn a turntable up with just the needle dropped and not even playing anything, it will naturally start, like a Technics 1210 will naturally feed back at about 30, below 30 hertz. So you get this huge bass field. Uh, the supply of air to the pipes produces um, very specific eddies, vortices and sounds that are relative to the movement of the air in those pipes. And flute um, stops are very similar to sine tone generators so that you have all of these tombral um, abilities to advance the concept of a sine tone generator to something that has very unique qualities. So rather than using these devices to produce a sound that's like something else, you know, that this sort of vaguely specious notion that the pipe organ is the first synthesizer, rather than looking at it in terms of synthesis, looking at it in terms of what it actually presents and it's something that moves a great deal of air in very specific ways. Equally, I get a lot of dub plates cut for me and work with acetates so that it produces very specific responses, um, system responses with the turntable. So everything becomes very specific to its context and I guess location and context is what drive what I'm interested in a great deal rather than I can make this thing sound like something else which is very much about decontextualizing on the limit of producing an objet sonore.
That was an excerpt from Bardo, Robert Kurgenvin's work for turntables and organ. Next, we travel to Croatia, where Tia Kulas, founder of the Zadar Organ Festival, explains the story behind the sea organ. Well, I come from Zadar, Croatia, where this installation is made. So I became aware of it as soon as it was installed, actually, when it was presented to the public. So immediately I became a big fan of it, <laughs> as, man, uh, as well as many other citizens of Zadar. We are extremely proud of this nature organ, which gives an opportunity for people to enjoy and relax. At the point, actually, where the medieval town embraced the Adriatic Sea. And this project was also part of the reconstruction of the seafront that was devastated in the Second World War. It was, of course, in the meantime fixed. But it looked like a monotonous concrete wall, and now we have a beautiful installation that attracts many, many tourists and, of course, citizens of Zadar. And can you give us some information about the background of the project, who designed it, and when it was installed, and why? Of course. The sea organ was designed by the Zadar architect Nikola Basic with the help of a number of experts. And the sea organ was officially opened on April 15, 2005, and already the next year uh, it was awarded with the prize of the European Prize for Urban Public Spaces. So Zadar is really a proud owner of this unique blend of uh, architecture and music, uh, actually very interesting achievement uh, of this uh, world-famous installation called Sea Organ. It looks like a series of simple, wide, wide stone stairs that are leading to the sea, which uh, hide an ingenious uh, construction, actually. It uh, stretches out over about 75 meters of the Zadar seafront, and at the level of the lowest low tide, 35 pipes of uh, various land diameters and slopes with the whistle openings are placed. And uh, here, we do not have a keyboard and a human aspect uh, for the playing, but the movement of the waves pushes air through the organ pipes, and that's how the music is created. Uh, we do have actually a sitting area above the organ that looks like a keyboard, <laughs> but it is not playing any role in uh, sound producing. So actually, depending on the size and velocity of the wave, we hear different harmonic sounds. And this organ has uh, seven successive groups of musical pipes that are uh, tuned to uh, two chords of the atonic major scale. So we hear G and uh, C6 uh, major chords, and those are inspired by uh, tra this choice is inspired by traditional vocal ensemble from the coastal part of Croatia, or how we say it in Croatian language, Dalmatinska klapa. So, um, yes, the outcome of uh, played tones uh, or end chords is a function of random time and space distribution of the wave energy to particular organ pipes. The, the five tuned pipes of each section are arranged in 1.5 meter spacing, and then a listener standing or sitting on a chosen point on the stairs can hear five to seven pipes playing their, well, natural music. <laughs> so this is really, really a place where human ideas and skills merge with the energy of the sea, waves, tides. It's a place for relaxation, reflection, of course, conversation, 
with a continuous concert of uh, mystical music of the orchestra of sea and nature. <laughs> wow. Um, how would you describe the sound of the sea organ? You said it was mystical. Can you say anything else about it? Yes. It sounds really mystical for me. It sounds like a whale producing some sounds. For example, uh, this, this uh, last year, and my festival, I made a concert that was inspired by the sea organ, and I decided to bring the Mixtur organ, uh, Dutch company Mixtur, to that place and perform pieces connected to the sea, mermaids, and the moon. And on the poster of the last edition of the festival was a whale that is holding a mermaid that is playing the organ in the sea. So it's a really uh, very fantasy-like, and this is how I see this. Uh, this place. And on the program I had uh, Debussy, Nadi Hakim, Bach, Handel, Vier, and Peters also. And it was a windy evening and uh, we had a wonderful and colorful dialogue between the mixture organ and the sea organ. And it was of course beautified by the most astonishing sunset in the world. <laughs> it was really, really interesting event. And when you listen to the sea organ, um, what do you feel that nature has to teach us about making music uh, as musicians? Well, it can teach us to just be inspired by the nature, actually about the different phases that nature is having, about the natural rhythms, that we can be spontaneous, that you know, everything is fine and it's always fine and we are not robots. So performance is not always perfect and it doesn't have to be because we are here to express something that is laying on our soul. We are not here to be computers. So just to go with the flow and be inspired and share our passion with people. This is something that this organ or generally nature is teaching me. And is the organ festival that you organize, is, is the sea organ in, in any way part of the festival? As I said, it was part in this way. So we chose this location and then we have a dialogue between the classical organ that is, uh, that is a mo mobile digital organ and uh, with this one. Of course, for the future, I have some ideas. Uh, and I would like uh, to uh, commission a piece uh, for the sea organ and the classical organ from some contemporary composer and ideas have already started to develop. For example, on this concert that I mentioned uh, on the sea organ, I uh, was accompanied by dancers of the Zadar Dance Ensemble and it also made it very special. They were moving like a mermaid, like some sea creatures and it was really wonderful there. Uh, so. Yes, I can really say that Zadar Organ Festival is a unique project. It is the first organ festival in Zadar and the Zadar region, and the only festival of this type in Croatia and its surroundings. And along with the regular program of organ recitals in combination with um, other instrumentalists, instruments and singers, the Zadar Organ Festival uh, regularly includes um, inter already mentioned interdisciplinary performances that are focused on the promotion of the city of Zadar, actually of Zadar area, as well as uh, contemporary tendencies uh, in art, 
we are reviewing the traditional framework uh, in the approach and experience of the organ and art in general, as well as the destruction of a numerous organ-related stereotypes. And at the same time, we are expanding uh, the perception of expressive uh, possibilities of the instrument and always, always encouraging free and uh, creative expression. So the layered structure of this festival is integrating the city's history and its uh, breathing through the centuries. Uh, we are, of course, taking advantage of this already existing element of the sea organ, and we are trying to raise the volume of uh, insufficiently well-known other instruments. listening to the Future Stops podcast, an initiative of the Royal Canadian College of Organists. My name is Blake Hargreaves and I'm your host as we explore the world of the 21st century organ. The last stop in this edition of our Organ Plus series, where we feature projects taking the organ beyond its conventional context in exciting new ways, is the Hourglass. Tauba Auerbach is an artist from the United States who, along with musician Cameron Mesereau, imagined an organ that required both of them to operate. Well, Cameron and I are longtime friends. We've known each other since we were teenagers. We met going to punk and hardcore shows in the Bay Area in the late 90s. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, we just did a lot of, like, projects at the time. Like, the first time we hung out, actually, we cut up clothes and made new clothes and then wore them out. So that was kind of the vibe of our friendship from the get-go. And um, I don't know, one night we were bored and we were like, let's, let's make something, let's make an instrument. So we looked up some plans online for how to make a banjo out of a cookie tin. And uh, we let ourselves into the sign painting shop that I worked at at the time and like used the saws and scraps of wood around there and made this fretless <laughs> Three string, very crude. <laughs> Not very good banjo. <laughs> and then we were like, well, who gets to play it or keep it in their room? Like, what do we do with this one person instrument? Um, maybe we should 
maybe you should make an instrument for two. And that was sort of how it's, that's how it started. And uh, eventually we landed on an organ as um, we wanted to make a, a two person instrument that was interdependent. Um, and we thought like the mechanisms of a pump, pump organ were pretty well fitting to that because we could sort of separate the two operations. And um, we can make something where I have to pump the air to Cameron and Cameron has to pump the air to me. And um, we thought it would be even more inter interdependent if we divided up the, the um, we have a four octave keyboard that we've split up in alternating notes. So like I have C, Cameron has C sharp, et cetera. Although we switch sides. Yeah, we switch sides now. We go back and forth. Okay, and so from this kind of concept, uh, what, what happened next? And, and also, what was your previous experience with the pipe organ, if I can ask that question as well? Absolutely. We had zero experience with it at all. Um, but we, we realized that, the, that, um, that an organ that you pump would be perfect for sort of crossing crossing wires, so to speak. Uh, we drew a crude drawing of ourselves sitting at an instrument with sort of like tubes going from one end to the other. And um, Cabo was preparing for um, a show with a gallery in New York called Deitch Projects. And um, we went to, uh, we looked up several organ builders and we sort of settled on one to go visit in Canandaigua, New York, um, Parsons, Parsons organ, Parsons pipe organ, pipe organ builders. Yes, that's right. Who were amazing. Who were incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, and we, uh, we went to visit them with our very crude drawing and they were extremely helpful and not at all, um, offended by our naivete. No, they educated us. They really so helped kind. us. Yeah, they were fantastic. And um, I just think we we got so lucky with them because they they helped us along in every step of the way. And they continue to help us all the time. And, and they also had an incredible inventory of parts there. And um, yeah. a lot of the design came from what was already on hand. Like we started... Uh, at their suggestion, we started by going into this room full of boxes of pipes and just blowing into different pipes to see to see which ones we liked the the sound of. And we originally thought we were going to use metal pipes, and then we um, encountered these these wood ones, and we're just like they were it. so cool. Yeah, and the keyboard is a re reused keyboard. Um, yeah, from a previous instrument as well. So we kind of like designed it around these things that we found at the organ builders. And also like all of the other little details, like the joined parts and everything was just, they were just so, they were so great. Yeah, they made a lot of great suggestions. They made a lot of really great suggestions. Joinery and yeah. joinery skills we didn't even know about. Yeah. <laughs> we were already sort of vaguely interested in that anyway, yeah. just as a beautiful... I don't know, process, but they provided that without us even knowing we could have it. And it was great. Yeah. And I guess one of the, we went there saying like, we really wanted the mechanisms to be as visible as possible too. So just be like a kind of a skeleton rather than uh, concealed. Yeah. yeah. 
you can really you can really see the the guts of the thing. Um, so at this time when you're um, engaging in this, this is like a, a fun project or a hobby and that you're putting time and resources into. Is there any goal or purpose? Uh, you know, what were you imagining would happen to, with this thing when it was finally built? I mean, I guess it's pretty big and it's got to live somewhere. So how did this all figure into your minds at the time? I don't think we realized at the time what we were getting into actually at all. Well, we knew it was going. We knew one place it was going. It was going to go into this show that I had planned, and so we had this. We had support um, to build it and to have a place to perform it. We performed it thirty-three times during that exhibition, um, every day at five p.m. And yeah, we didn't know what would happen after that, but that was a, <laughs> that was enough of an end game, I guess, for us to just like see it as worth doing. When it arrived, it was sort of like we had to to meet it and get acquainted with it and mm-hmm. um, and get to know its personality a little bit. And it, it is it is like a non neutral element in the whole equation. Absolutely, it's not really like a dualistic relationship between me and Cameron. It's like a three three entity orbit that's happening. Like, does anybody else play this instrument, or is it just the two of you? Well, uh, as of just this past few months, um, there have been students composing on it at SFMOMA from San Francisco State Mills College and the Conservatory, the Conservatory of San Francisco. And we're hoping to have more people. It, it was actually a pretty mind-blowing experience for Tauba and I to see these people playing, and we're about to go see them again. We're doing a performance. Um, so it was, it was really, it's truly amazing to see other people doing it. It's, it's yeah, thrilling. Thrilling. Kind of very exciting. Quietly wept yes. most of the practice because <laughs> it was so incredible. I'm, I'm really yeah. excited to hear their final pieces. Yeah. But everybody who, who, um, has worked with it, has had this experience of kind of having to get to know it. Like it's not, it's not, it sort of misses the point and also seems like it would be really difficult to just compose a piece on like a keyboard and then split it up and just play it on the organ. It's sort of like you have to compose on the instrument. Um, you know, there's one piece that Cameron and I learned this very short and in our minds <laughs> simple Bach <laughs> piece, like a, a beret for originally written for lute. And um, we thought, oh, piece of cake, we'll learn this short thing. And it's the hardest thing that we play on the hourglass because it wasn't composed on it. And so our two respective parts are just complete gibberish, just non- nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> There's no like you you can't really make shapes on the keyboard or like shapes out of the uh the phrases in the way that you would if you had like written the piece on the thing. So if we were I guess maybe if we were reading music, like Talba can read music and I can't. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe if we were more like um better sort of 
technicians. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it would work, but I think it would also, if we were inviting people to write for it, we really encourage them to not start until they just like spent time feeling what it feels like to pump the pump and play at the same time and coordinate with their partner and kind of get to know it haptically before trying to just project something onto it. It is a testament to the versatility of the organ that its fundamental concept can be applied to such disparate and innovative projects as the hourglass, the sea organ, and Robert Kurgenvin's sculpting of the air. In each case, the instrument unlocks ideas and processes which bring people together, offer them new contextual perspective, and offer some pleasing sounds in the process. Kurgenvin's music reminds us that sound is all around us and affects our thoughts and feelings from moment to moment. The sea organ shows us the connection between music and nature, and that any sound can function as music if the listener wants it to be. And the hourglass is a beautiful object which functions as an instrument, a sculpture, and a tool for collaborative entrainment between people. Music itself is such a tool, as for the listener to appreciate it, they must accept the performer's interpretation, and that support is essential to the performer's ability to fulfill their role. We'd like to thank Robert Kurgenvin, Taya Kulis, Taba Auerbach, and Cameron Massaro for joining us today. We'd love it if you would join us too on social media at Future Stops and Future Stops Podcast, where you can bring your voice to the conversation. We're also pleased to invite you to visit our Patreon account, where you can make a contribution to the production of this podcast to keep us going. Visit patreon.com slash futurestops to sign up. Future Stops is a podcast from the Royal Canadian College of Organists produced by Andrew O'Connor with Sanjay Parker as community manager and executive producer Elizabeth Shannon. I'm your host, Blake Hargreaves.